arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. And all of the assets of Barnes-Wentworth will belong to the bank. Well, Vaughn, well, not all the assets. If I remember correctly, our deal calls for me to get control of Gold Canyon 340. What are you doing here? Oh, I just thought you might want to see the face of your other friendly banker. No, no, no. I got my money from Vaughn. You got your money from both of us. And tomorrow night, we're going to turn off the faucet and all your cash flow is just going to dry right up. You set me up? From the very beginning. But I didn't do it alone, in addition to Vaughn Leland here. I had a great assist from your massive ego and unbelievable stupidity. I had those tracks checked. There's oil in there. Well, sure there is. Millions of dollars worth. Oh, it is a fair setup. As a matter of fact, it was the fairest setup I've ever had the pleasure of engineering. I couldn't lose. Because I knew you were just too dumb to find that oil. There are some movie and television characters we just love to see get set up. Even as late as 2012, in the last Dallas series, J.R. sets up Barnes from the nursing home. Which brings us to Gordon Butts. What J.R. said about Barnes being stupid and allowing his own ego to suck him into being set up is true. Gordon Butts is a small-timer in the end, even smaller than Cliff Barnes. But he can't help himself to believe that he's sharp and savvy, smart and stupendous. It does take time, but Butts does take a trip down the Cliff Barnes Memorial Highway. Task Force leader Maureen Garrity finally gets an email from Gordon Butts. Even the dastardliest plans have a beginning, and Garrity will find answers. Here is Framed by Robert P. Fitton, written in my own favorite style, the first person, beginning now. Framed by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 1. Murder followed Gordon Butts like the speckled bird circling in the seaside fog. After so many years of trailing the elusive Mr. Butts, Garrity received a priority email from Butts himself. Team leader, Maureen Garrity. Task Force Murder. 432 Route 16, West Leavenworth, New Jersey, 0700. Garrity pushed back her blonde hair and picked up her cell. Judith, I want everyone in my office. Gordon Butts has just sent me an email. Arbenez is still in Paramus. Then get his ass back here. You tell him Gordon Butts has contacted us. Wait, this is an MP4 video file. I thought you said that Butts was off the radar after all this time. Apparently not, said Garrity as she lit a cigarette. Why would he send us a video file? Hey, what's up, Mo? asked Garrett, moving his large frame through the door. His hair had grown out in the Afro style from years ago. Planning on going disco dancing, Garrett? I was born in the 70s. He leaned toward the screen and tightened his dark-skinned brow. Gordon, butts, I thought we gave up on this one. We did. He looked into Garrett's eyes. Adams and Danny ran in from the front office. Judy said butts emailed something to you? said Danny in his white shirt and tie. It's Friday, Dan. Shed the tie. I think he sleeps in it, said the dark-eyed Joy Adams. Where's Juan? 
Garrity held the cigarette between her fingers and let it smolder. He'd be coming down for Paramus. Come on, Maureen, said Joy Adams. Let's not wait for one. What the hell could Gordon Butts want with us? Oh, he's arrogant, said Garrett. Somehow he's got to rub it all in our collective faces. My gut says no, said Garrity. By all rights, we never should have heard from Butts again. That wouldn't break my heart, the bastard, said Danny. Garrity stared at the attached file. What's this all about? How great thou art, the Gordon Butts story, said Garrett, and they all laughed. Well, let's see what's on this video. A large MP4 file, several hundred gigabytes, showed up on the screen. Do we really want to see a video of Gordon Butts? asked Joy. This guy is sleazy. Well, this is very odd, said Garrity, pushing back her long blonde hair. Sent just this afternoon. She clicked on the file. The music player filled with snow and static for a few moments. A disheveled Gordon Butts, his dark, thinning hair pushed straight back, his yellow-striped tie draped over his wrinkled white shirt, sat on an empty apartment's wood floorboards under half-open milky Venetian blinds. A gray plastic answering machine placed on a dull metal radiator flashed red with messages. Garrity let the cigarette burn. Hello, Garrity. You tell your team I'm ready to talk about the murders now. It may take a while, but I'm trapped. Garrity froze the video on the monitor. As team leader, she had publicly stated that the Butts case was closed. What is it, a trick, Mo? asked Garrett. Garrity's mouth remained open for several seconds. Why in the world would Gordon Butts confess to anything after all this time? Butts was the consummate optimist, said Joy. Yeah, exactly. She clicked on the file and the video started again. Oh, he looks like God's wrath, said Garrett. Lucky Juan isn't here. He hates Butts. Butts strained to keep his dark eye slits open. Garrity had not seen him in a couple of months and thought Butts looked ill. In his shaky right hand, Butts gripped a silver microphone, probably connected to the video camera, and in his other hand, he pinched a smoldering cigarette. Garrity believed that Butts had gotten away with murder. She pushed the play button again, and Butts's image became alive. I walked into Walter Thornton's second-floor office in August of 2010. I had done a lot of selling and was what you might call a top gun, but I never sold plumbing supplies. After the crash, I needed a change. Thornton was a big guy, kind of clumsy. He had a buck-tooth smile and worked long hours and made more money than he knew about. He made you feel like you were important. Same type of deal you do every day in sales, except Walter Thornton's attitude was genuine. Poured me a tall glass of water, popped in the ice cubes, and wanted to know whom I had sold to and what kind of track record I had. If I hadn't listened to my friend Tom Cowles, I wouldn't be in the trouble I'm in now. Tom moonlighted as an auditor and an accountant and heard about the Thornton job through the grapevine. When Tom wrote Walter Thornton's name and number on the napkin over beer one night, I thought I might have a chance to make more money. I was selling good, but not getting rich. I was 25 years old, ambitious and ready to advance my career. Take a look at me now. I haven't slept. I'm losing weight, and I'll be dead soon. They're all gone now, Garrity. They did this to me. They all framed me. Walter Thornton listened real close as I exaggerated my lackluster job selling machine tools and parts to small shops all over New Jersey. I had the job since I got out of the service. 
What I didn't tell him is how I blew up at the son of a bitch who called himself a sales manager. The little Napoleon, Norman Slavitz. I didn't tell Walter Thornton how I got myself fired. In his Long Island warehouse, Walter Thornton had a birch-paneled second-floor office with a cushioned white rug. He had a huge monitor, DVD system, probably for sales meetings, and he sat on a glossy conference table near the open front window span. The place reeked of cheap cologne. I studied the two rows of plumbing and heating supply books, filling the wall shelves behind his desk. He sat in his high-backed chair, leather chair, stroked his chin as I crafted my story. It was odd, Garrity, as I sipped on the water. I felt like I already had the job. I didn't need to detail sales quotas, budgets, and figures. Walter Thornton nodded. Occasionally, he pushed the remaining strands of his straw hair over his rounded head. He'd look at me with those sad cow eyes, shook his jowls as he nodded and scratched notes on a yellow pad. I wondered as I sat there why I had spent three years busting my hump in a job that paid next to nothing was going nowhere. That's probably why I lost it with Slavitz. Oh, I added some fiction to my account. You don't get sent to jail for lying in a job interview. I took Walter Thornton all the way in just a half an hour. He stood behind his wide, polished wooden desk, placed his oversized hands on the blotter and said, Well, I want you to work for me, Butts. You're the type of man I could use in my organization. Being self-assured and cocky, I reclined in the soft chair, pressed my lips for a few seconds before I looked back at him. Well, I'll have to think about it, Mr. Thornton, I said, even though I know I needed the job and was essentially broke. Stunned, Walter Thornton looked at me twice in quick, successive glances, and then blabbed about paying me more salary than I had made at Crowley Fastener Machine Parts. I let him sweat. And he did sweat. He seemed very nervous and breathed in short bursts as he spoke. But I had him thinking the best salesman on the East Coast was sitting back with his legs crossed, debating whether to accept his job offer. He excused himself for a moment and walked into a private bathroom. Through the cracked door, I saw him remove a small brass case and then press something under his tongue. Walter Thornton had heart problems. When he returned to the office, I upped the stakes. Listen, Mr. Thornton, I said. I really want to work for you, but frankly, I don't know what kind of future I'd have here. Is your business just growing flat? Growing butts, growing. We don't just sell supplies here. We sell contracts, heating and air conditioning contracts. I have another warehouse in central Jersey. I don't think you know where I live. Do you know where I live? Uh, No, sir, I lied, but I did know where he lived. When Tom told me about the job, I had driven my clunker near the gates of his Tanglewood mansion on Long Island. I couldn't even see past the ivy walls from my car, but I got out, propped myself up, and gazed across the most extensive grounds I had ever seen. They had more guys in there than the Yankee Stadium ground crew, keeping the place looking good. I wanted a part of it. Maybe I'd just take the pool house. I wanted to break out of that dump where I'd been living at the Bryant and Cranes Beach for over three years. Where do you live, Mr. Thornton? Have you ever heard of Tanglewood, Mr. Butts? Ah, uh, no, sir. 
I answered, playing dumb because I knew I had this fish hooked and was about to reel him in. Tanglewood, Mr. Butts, is an exclusive community on Long Island. It's private and very wealthy. And I am a wealthy man. I can't even tell you what I'm worth. I'll leave that for my wife to figure out. I'd seen the wife, Garrity. She'd been by the pool the day I climbed over the top and peered across the grounds. She was at least ten years younger than Walter Thornton. Back then she had short, auburn hair and wore a bright green string bikini. I wouldn't call her a looker, but I don't take my eyes off any woman walking around nearly bare-ass. I thought she was flat-chested, but she didn't mind taking off her top when she stretched out on the pool lounger. Connie, my wife, she does the books. Always has, ever since I took over the business from my father. And I could see the rest coming. The guy had no kids and was probably looking for someone to take under his wing. Well, it sounds like your father worked hard for the business. Oh, you bet he did. I wasn't thinking of my ass then, having wished I had scaled the wall a few weeks back and slithered my way to his wife lying on her stomach next to the pool. You know, people don't understand that it's hard work that brings results. Things don't just come to you on a silver platter. That's exactly right. When my father died... How did he die, Mr. Thornton? Heart attack. Massive heart attack. I'm sorry. No, no, he said, motioning with his hands. It happened real quick. Dad felt no pain. Sometimes that's the best way to go, I said. Walter Thornton had deep feelings for his father, but I didn't give a damn. I wanted the job. Wanted a chance to leave Crane's Beach and aspire to the Tanglewood lifestyle. Listen, Gordon, I want you to work for me. You can start on Monday. I'll bring you through New Jersey myself. Give me a chance to get out of this prison and meet some of my old accounts. I looked at him and nodded. But I had to wonder just how much time he spent in this office, his prison like the little puppy dog running up to his master after a long day's work. I stood and my hand was enveloped by his larger mitt. Mr. Thornton, I would be honored to work for Thornton Plumbing and Supply. Framed by R.P. Fitton Chapter 2 Disasters have small beginnings. My routine soon consisted of a week-long trek up and down the New Jersey coast conning local suppliers, plumbers, and contractors into using Thornton Plumbing and Supply. I whined and dined, bullied and intimidated this group of hard-working, conniving sleazes who used my kind of tactics to land their own jobs and contracts. The routine was the same. I'd start out in southern New Jersey and work my way back to New York. From my years on the road, I knew the cities, the bars, and the women along the way. I used to brag about my exploits to my naive friend, Tom Cowles. Most people were surprised to see me back after I was fired by Norman Slavitz. One part of me wanted to cross his path again and rub it in about my new job. Why risk Slavitz calling Walter Thornton and telling him the truth? I pulled into a small seaside bar called Flips around 10 on a Wednesday night. I still drove my 1978 red Ford Torino an oversized gas guzzler, an embarrassment now, but car had heat in the winter and air conditioning in the summer, so I couldn't kick. Besides, Walter Thornton had promised me a company car if I could double the sales in the territory. I doubted I could. The competition was keen, but for some reason I walked on water as far as he was concerned. 
In a few months, I could probably sweet-talk him into that car anyways. Walter Thornton was the type of guy who dreamed big, thought big, and then accepted whatever came his way. For some reason on that October night, as I pushed open the heavy bar door, I thought of Connie Thornton the summer before as I stepped into the smoke-fan dingy dive. I lit a cigarette and I wondered why she had felt it necessary to take off her top while sunbathing. She had her back to me and I thought for a long time what her front must have looked like. I sat at the bar, glancing at the Monday night football game on the widescreen and I ordered a beer. As I always do, Garrity, I scanned the bar and booths beyond, looking for some local talent. Somebody to shack up with for the night, but that probably doesn't surprise you. You and your team seem to have done a thorough job in seeing through my obvious character deficiencies. I found what I was looking for in one of the side booths near an intense pool game down the other end. She was small and cheap, with curled bleached hair. She guarded a diluted sweet drink, sat alone smoking, and peeked out the side window. I knew how to be inauspicious. You know that about me too, don't you? I left the bar and walked down to the pool game, pretending to be the world's aficionado on eight ball, all the while slowly backing toward the little thing in the booth. When I fell back spilling my beer, she produced a quick chirp. I turned and looked embarrassed and focused on her mascara-smeared eyes. Hey, I'm so sorry, I said, mopping up the beer with the table napkins. When she said, that's all right, I knew I had her. I won't detail what I did with her that night, all night. Something came out of it, something setting everything else in motion, something not occurring to me consciously at the time, but seething in my brain, fighting to burst out, and finally allowed to escape with Wanda Jenkins' suggestion. We were in bed back at her place. I'm not sure what time it was. Near morning, I don't know. See, hours ago I had told her my usual story about being on the road and working for Thornton Plumbing and Supply. I'm listening to the waves licking the shore outside of her apartment. In the darkness, she said I could go to the top if I put the moves on Connie Thornton. I was surprised that this floozy in the middle of nowhere would produce such a splendid, superb suggestion. She sat up in the dull light. I wanted to make love again when I saw her, but she rebuffed me this time. She told me what I needed to do was get invited to Walter Thornton's house, preferably when he wasn't there. She knew how I had conned her at the bar, and she told me that some women like to be conned. It was all part of the game I knew all too well. But this was the ultimate challenge, Garrity, to go after Walter Thornton's wife, that bikini-string bare-ass woman who liked to shed her top at the pool. Somehow the game appealed to me even more than furthering my career. The thought of power crept in later, but when it did, any carnal feelings were sublimated when I imagined for the first time in my life what it might be like to wield power over other men, clients, and employees. Wanda, I said. Every day I'm busting my ass through New Jersey trying to make quotas and shoving plumbing supplies down somebody's throat. And I love doing it. I bet, she said, snuggling up to me again. But this, I want this. I felt driven to go after this woman who lived in Tanglewood. I didn't care about Walter Thornton. He was in the office most nights anyways. The time was ripe for Connie Thornton. I didn't know anything about her. What she did or desired, 
I only knew I wanted to slide into her life. I knew you were ambitious when I saw you at the bar. Maybe. I would get into Connie's life carefully and methodically, even if she knew I only wanted to advance myself with her influence. I didn't care what she thought of me, only that she might participate in my perverted game. And she would. I could feel it. Climbed on top of Wanda and kissed her again. You're a scumball, Gordon, she said, pulling back the sheets. Yeah. I was going to find Connie, track her down, and know exactly where she dined, what she liked, and what she didn't like. I would form a profile on her, as I did one of my accounts. She wouldn't be able to think a thought without me knowing it first. And I'd take her, Garrity. I'd take her quick, before she could think twice about it. So fast that she'd rue the day that she didn't have Gordon Butts in her life. Framed by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 3 you probably wondered where I am right now, and you probably figured it out. You've unraveled how and why I ended up here. A late afternoon chance meeting in March 2011 led me here. I had been looking into Connie Thornton's life for a few months, but the opportunity to even talk with her never presented itself. Oh, I was invited to the shindig Walter Thornton gave at Christmas time at the Tanglewood Estate. I never knew he had 30 employees in those two warehouses and he hinted that he was expanding deeper into New Jersey. He never told me anything privately. Connie came late to the party. She wore a red velvet gown pasted to her thin body, bared at the shoulders, and her hair was longer than the summer, but pinned up. She hung over Walter Thornton, mingling cheerfully with the guests, and produced a clear, captivating smile. Walter Thornton introduced me in the midst of her conversation with some of the salesman's wives and told me I should get myself a wife. Her blue eyes gleamed, not because she was looking at me, but because she had that look about her. In fact, I was just another passerby, like someone in the line at a hoity-toity state dinner. I tried to keep my eyes up and not look down at her accentuating gown, pronouncing every curve of her compact body. All Walter Thornton could say about his wife was she did the books, and he laughed when he said nothing gets by her. But even back then, I knew this woman relished her role in the Tanglewood community. She belonged to the garden club, liked to touch her taste buds to that imported French wine while she nibbled cheese at the local fundraisers and art shows. She dressed well and had a private account at Benton's in the city, an account Walter Thornton never looked into. She was articulate, loved animals, spoke on their behalf around the city, but she never owned one. How would I ever penetrate this socially outstanding, high-class woman who wouldn't give the crass Gordon Butts a second look? You've done well in New Jersey, Mr. Butts. I paused and pictured her studying computer spreadsheets. She was privy to everything in Walter Thornton's company. And she must have known about that one deal I pulled off with the contractor who had questionable credit. That deal helped me limp across the finish line at the end of the year. What she didn't know is how I paid the guy under the table to do business. Well, it's uh, been a good year, Mrs. Thornton. Oh, please call me Connie. Okay, Connie. I pretended to sip my drink, studied her little nose as Walter Thornton came out of nowhere with three salesmen from the city. Guys Connie knew better than she knew me. I wondered if they had ever been out to Tanglewood, or maybe they had met Connie on other occasions. As I was edged out of the conversation, I studied every inch of her evening gown. 
She wasn't as flat-chested as I had thought. I didn't see her again till a March afternoon in New Jersey at the warehouse outside of Bayonne. The warehouse business gave me instant sales without making any sales calls. I liked that kind of arrangement. The snow swirled through the air and had the Torino's heater blasting in my face as the wipers hurled the heavy slush off the windshield. It wasn't even four in the afternoon, but as I crept up the turnpike, it might as well have been midnight. I fishtailed off the ramp and saw the outlines of Walter Thornton's snow-pelted brick building along the state road. I wanted to head right for the Apple Wine Motel, like I had every Thursday for the last few years, except for the time I was out of work the previous summer, but I was required to stop at the warehouse. Walter Thornton thought being at the warehouse was good public relations with the staff, as well as getting a handle on potential clients. I really thought it was mostly bullshit. When I saw the BMW parked along the side of the building, I figured Walter Thornton himself had driven down from Long Island. I skidded on the unplowed surface as I veered into the parking lot and parked diagonally near the empty snow-covered loading bays. No trucks would be arriving in this mess, and I prepared to betray the happy-go-lucky salesman on the road for Walter Thornton. I saw Peter Walsh, the warehouse manager, down back with the shipper. Peter was a stout, middle-aged guy with a thick beard stubble by late afternoon. Well, Gordo, what the hell are you doing here? Snowstorm, perfect excuse to go off early and have a few brews. Bingo. I lit a cigarette. Your sales are up for the week. I was just telling Shirley I do confide in my wife. I don't know how the hell you do it. Sell, 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 Peter. I inhaled and looked around. The big man here? Worse, the brains of the outfit. Connie? Hey, said Peter, whispering. She's got more than brains. I grinned and left the cigarette hanging from the corner of my mouth. Naughty, Peter, naughty. Well, what? I'm sure she's good at what she does. I looked him in the eyes, shaking my head with the cigarette still in my mouth. Where is she, upstairs? Going over the books on her computer. Want some privacy with her, Gordo? Right, what do you think, I'm nuts? Not that I wouldn't want to. Walter would have my ass in about two seconds. Walter doesn't know shit. Peter. I smiled again, this time holding the cigarette as I took a drag. I moved up the set of wooden stairs leading along the cinder block wall. I looked down at Peter again, shook my head as he made some kind of gesture, bordering on obscene. I opened the door to ten vacant desks, silent phones, and empty side offices. I walked over to the restroom. I opened the door quickly. Connie Thornton was fixing a wide gold earring and looked at me in the mirror. She didn't evidence the frightened displeasure you might think when some clown opens the bathroom door. She had that same seductive smile and wasn't rattled as she continued to adjust her earring. She spoke in a high, classy voice. Good afternoon, Mr. Butts. Ah, I apologize, Mrs. Thornton. I didn't know you were even in. It's a nasty afternoon. I put out my cigarette and swept my eyes across her olive skin and vest. The material hung snug enough against her hips to attract my attention. I fiddled with my tie. Yeah, the turnpike's in rough shape. I asked the next obvious question, and she must have known I'd ask it. Is uh, Mr. Thornton around? No, Mr. Butts, he's back on Long Island. My heart spun around like a lawnmower revving up. 
She turned as if on cue, earring in place as she smiled. Under the vest, she wore a silky white blouse with a blue bra beneath. She pretended to cover her blouse with her vest. Is he all right? He's fine, Mr. Butts. Why did I have the odd notion that this woman enjoyed being alone with me in the second floor bathroom of a New Jersey plumbing supply warehouse? It was an odd notion. She excused herself and I stepped back and she came within a few inches of brushing against me. But I could smell that thick scent. The perfume was even stronger than when I had closed the door and laughed for thinking she was here for some reason other than doing the books. Before I went out to the office, I splashed a prodigious amount of cold water across my sweaty face and beard stubble. Then I wiped it down with a couple of stiff paper towels. I dived for another cigarette, but didn't want to bother her by filling up the office with smoke. I opened the door. Connie sat upright in one of the side offices, and her long tapering cigarette spewed a blue trail toward the ceiling. I lit up. She stayed in the office and didn't say anything. I wasn't going to be so forward as to try and hustle her right there. These things take finesse. They take time and patience. Hooking the person until you got them. Then it becomes impossible to get away. I sat down at a center desk and acted as if I was making phone calls to my customers. But her fragrance overtook me and I kept thinking about her tanned face in the mirror. Have you planned dinner, Mr. Butts? I looked up from the phone and she puffed on the cigarette inconsequentially and when she exhaled, the smoke hit her face for a moment. She stood and stretched like a cat. You know the area. Yeah. I need a place for the night. I'm calling Walter. There's no way I'm driving back through the city tonight. My mind flipped through a hundred scenarios, all involving me and the upscale Mrs. Thornton. But I knew this woman had a cosmopolitan flair was sharp and wouldn't be swooned by some smart-ass salesman who hadn't graduated college. I pitched the second-highest place in the area. I'd only been in there once and it had been with Slavitz years ago. Well, there's uh, the Milton House on Highway 16. It's a country inn. Milton House. And the food? Superb, Mrs. Thornton. Superb. Oh, good still didn't know whether she had invited me to dinner or was merely asking me about the restaurant. A country inn, good. That'll work out just fine. She sat down and opened up the books again. This was the perfect opportunity to get to know this woman. How much better could it be? With a storm raging outside, her husband a hundred miles away, and I'm staying in the same town? Faded shined on Gordon Butts, but I still had no idea whether I'd be eating alone and munching on some reheated bowl of sour pasta at Sloppy Joe's down the street. She pounded the keyboard and looked up at the computer screen. I probably should have left. I had no business being there faking numerous calls to my accounts. Peter Walsh and the shipper had long since left and the auxiliary lights were on downstairs. It was 6.30 and my stomach growled. The computer screen's blue reflection dissolved across my face. It was crunch time. Either I was going to have dinner with this lady or end up at Sloppy Joe's. She stood, shuffled some papers into a tan leather briefcase, picked it up and rounded the desk. Where did you uh, acquire your accounting skills? I don't know why I asked her that. I should have just asked her to join me for dinner at the Milton House. She stopped, set down the briefcase and didn't shut off the light. 
She looked at me for a second, smiled, and I noticed this woman's scrumptious body was only surpassed by her oversized ego. That was the ticket, and I knew it the second I asked the question. Her face lit up, and for the next 15 minutes, she talked about herself, moseying her way to the edge of an outer desk. I kept watching her trim legs. She was a college grad from Vassar and had an advanced degree in some place I'd never heard of out in Chicago. But I observed something else, not from what she said, but how she reacted to my less-than-refined mannerisms. I made a slightly off-color remark about women being in business. I don't even remember exactly what it was. Something to do with broad-minded attitudes. She liked the remark. She had a weakness for the crude, shrouded in her high-class, refined ways. Maybe it was slightly visible when she smoked, and I sensed it was a weakness that hardly ever escaped, held in check by her upbringing or her place in society. I knew Walter Thornton never tapped that weakness. I doubt he even knew about it. Nobody knew Connie Thornton was excited by borderline innuendos hinting of vulgarity. My kind of game. She was playing with the master. It would take time, and she didn't know it, or if she did, she wouldn't fight it. But I was in control now. It was as if I was at the piano and had a magnificent piece to play. A piece that needed no practice, because I knew it by rote. Every note, every pause, and every tone. She leaned back, pressed her arms across her silky blouse, and raised her brows. Meet me at the Milton House, Mr. Butts. Framed by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 4 The Milton House, spotting a white colonial with huge portico pillars and long side wings containing the sleeping accommodations, resided on a quiet lake. I always felt uncomfortable any place requiring a tie. I said very little, letting her dominate the conversation, and didn't blurt out anything stupid. But I noted how she spoke. I listened to what she talked about, and in my mind, mimicked her manner of speaking. It could all be acted out, just like selling. I didn't put the moves on her that night because I was playing for keeps, and I wanted to sink this woman so deep she wouldn't know how to get out. It was simple, feeding her ego. I pretended everything about her was important. She prattled on about growing up in an exclusive Chicago suburb and how her parents had money. She went to private schools where she learned manners and how to conduct herself in public. She probably had developed those skills by the time she was 14. I could see she liked being in control, which for my purposes was okay. She liked sailing and swimming, and she said she excelled in both activities. I had never been to polo matches, but she frequented polo matches, yet she liked something as simple as bowling in a women's league. She played gin rummy with her friends and belonged to a long list of clubs. When she was in school, she had dabbled in gymnastics, and I could visualize her compact body flipping around the double parallel bars and skirting the balance beam. We didn't talk about me. I like to hang out in bars and drink cold beer. I watched sports on the overhead monitors and tried to pick up chicks. And I liked to gamble at every tract anywhere else I could make quick money. She never asked about how you sell something, how you work an account. She asked nothing about me, yet she seemed to sense everything about me. But she didn't want to change me. Being around her brought me into another world where I might feel like I had elevated my position. She was brilliant in accounting and everything else, 
I sat uncomfortably, knowing I had spent four years in the service while she worked on her master's degree. I could fix cars and artillery pieces, but she had a usable, marketable skill. I sent the personal questions flying at her, and she fielded them one by one, boring me with her life stories, but I liked the way her tiny face lit up when she talked about herself. I wondered if she had beamed that way when Walter Thornton made love to her, if he still did. Something told me this woman released everything when she was in the bedroom, but I stayed away from my wild thoughts as the snow continued to fall outside the window. It built up on an abandoned birdbath and on the fence as I stuffed myself with course after course. I knew that she, and eventually Walter Thornton, would be shelling out his hard-earned cash so that Gordon Butts could be hustling his wife and push his way up the ladder in Walter Thornton's own company. Nothing happened that night, Garrity, not because I didn't think about invading her hotel room. You see, with Connie, it wasn't just a carnal thing at first. She was likable, attractive, and fun to be around all at the same time. I wanted to gain favor with her and shake aside the everyday drudgery of getting in my car and working my way north toward Crane's Beach. I found as I walked with her from the restaurant, I made her laugh and convinced myself I was good for her. Did Walter Thornton make her laugh like this? I don't think she really had laughed in a long time. Her usual smiles were produced while she performed the daily duties on behalf of the company or in her own private affairs. We talked for 45 minutes as we walked inside the historic building and ended up near the front lobby. All the local gentry had arrived out of the storm. There was a genuine, unplanned rapport brewing with Connie. I admit my first intentions involved advancing my career, but as we parted company, I found myself oddly attracted to her, and it had nothing to do with string bikinis and swimming pools. I found a note the next morning at what you might call the front desk of the apple wine. The note was a telephone message from C. Thornton. Enjoyed last night, Gordon. We'll call. That simple message had done more for my career than all the years on the road. But more than that, I like Connie Thornton. I enjoyed being around her and found it hard to believe she had really invited me to the Melton house. And even more incredibly, she was going to call again. Where did that leave Walter Thornton? Did the guy have any clue that his wife was going to place a personal call to one of his salesmen? I drove up the snow-smeared coast that morning. The sun had broken early and the tree branches looked raw and clean. I closed clients like I was mowing down pins at a bowling alley. She had invigorated me and I knew it. I knew it with every word I uttered and the way I spoke those words. It was the beginning of a streak where I couldn't lose. There was no message on my phone machine when I got back to the Bryant. I called my next door neighbor and friend, Tom Cowles, over. We had a few beers and watched a fight on cable. Tom was a lanky guy who worked at a local college, did some bookkeeping, probably never been to a fight in his life. But Tom and I both loved sports. Tom had an encyclopedic mind and could recite any statistic from any sport. It was amazing. I know his girlfriend hated Tom hanging around me. In fact, she hated me altogether. Melanie thought I dragged him down when he should have been applying his business knowledge to advance himself. Tom's prowess had been useful to me a few times, especially when I had to juggle accounts. Melanie called twice during the opening rounds. 
I held the receiver for Tom until he finally told her in the fourth to leave him alone. Good for him, I thought. That lady was a drag. If I really wanted to stir up trouble, I'd bring Tom on some of my fishing expeditions to the local bars. One thing about Tom, he could keep his mouth clamped no matter what happened. I told him about Connie, like I told him about every chick I ever scored with. Tom wore those dark, nerdy-type jerseys and never wore contacts. I saw his eyes light up every time I described going into a bar on the road and ending up with some wild woman in a motel room or an apartment. He liked that about me. The ability to bring him to places where the little woman would never let him go. But he thought I was pushing my luck by trying anything with Connie Thornton. I went to the refrigerator and got two more cold beers. I twisted off the tops and handed one to Tom. You're being a putz, Gordon. Don't you realize the risk you'd be taking? If old man Thornton found out, you'd be out on your ass in a second. Besides, has she called you? Now, I said, shaking my head. The woman will call. I know these things. Why, because she left you a note? Something you can't see, buddy. That subtle, I want you look in a woman's eyes when you're reeling her in. Sometimes you're too sleazy for your own good, Gordon. You never can be too sleazy or too slick, Tommy. She liked me. I'm not telling you one of my usual road stories. Nobody went to bed or even talked about sex. This woman liked me. Find that hard to believe. Well, screw you, I said, but not in an angry way. I watched Bacconi on the screen, the guy I had placed a hundred bucks on being beaten to a soggy state. Look at him, he can't even defend himself. Good puncher, but he can't stand his ground once the pressure gets on. Well, Brady is an overwhelming force, said Tom. He'll be the next heavyweight champion. He's got eight fights, four by knockout, and he's lost one. The rest are all TKOs. That's why you took the good odds, right, Gordon? You looked at the odds and not at the guy. He's a strong puncher, but nobody can knock him down. He's young and he's learning. I tell you, he'll be the next heavyweight champion. Connie Thornton liked me. What, are you still stuck on that? Tom tipped the beer bottle up real quick as if he was having a good time. He dipped his hands into the cheese balls. So she likes you. What are you going to do with it? That's my one and only question. To the top, buddy. To the top. Top of what? Listen to yourself, Gordon. You're dreaming. Thornton, from what I've read in the local business magazines, is on the way up. He's opened that New Jersey branch three years ago, and it's booming. She wants more warehouses in New York, Connecticut, and another one in southern Jersey, and she'll do it, too. The guy isn't stupid, and neither is she. You just don't have dinner with Walter Thornton's wife one night when she's snowed in and think you're going to be running his company. I will run his company. Tom shook his head and was still shaking his head when he went to the bathroom. He kept talking to me from inside trying to convince me of the futility of hustling Connie Thornton. But I could see something about Connie he couldn't see, and probably sensed it even before Connie brought me to dinner. Tom wasn't at the table. He didn't see how I made this woman laugh. He opened the bathroom door, zipped up his fly, and washed his hands in the kitchen sink. Mark my word, you'll get yourself fired. And when Thornton fires you, Gordon, you'll never get another job. You'll be finished. I let him lecture me as if I was in his business class. Initially, I wanted his approval, which made the challenge even more exciting. I would show Tom. I was serious. Connie was serious, and I could advance myself. My guy lost the fight, and we put on a basketball game. 
Tom called Melanie around 10.30 and got into a brief argument. Came back probably parroting what his girlfriend had said on the phone about his having to be at the college tomorrow morning at 8 to teach students the fundamentals of accounting. Melanie upset me more than she upset Tom. I deliberately kept him late just to set her straight. If she left the guy alone, she would have gotten more from him. But she continuously prodded him, battering him with demands and a long list of complaints. Tom needed to go bar hopping. Tom again warned me about pushing my luck with Connie. Told him he was naive and didn't understand women. He didn't dispute the point. I slapped him on the back and sent him on his way to his viper girlfriend. I went to bed about 15 minutes later with a good buzz, listening to music that probably kept my neighbors awake, and I fell asleep before the music ended. Framed by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 5 Well, what do you guys think? asked Garrity at the coffee pot. Coffee? About a shot, said Garrett. Listening to this. Well, he's leading us somewhere, said Joy Adams. That is 100% right, said Garrity. Gordon is leading us toward murder. You heard him. Well, I know he's a colossal bullshitter, said Danny, his five o'clock shadow dark against his smooth white skin. We'll see, said Garrity, and she clicked the mouse. The frozen Gordon butts came to life, staring into the camera. Ever notice, Garrity, how really important things in your life sneak up on you? Connie didn't call me that weekend. I went to a fast-paced Knicks game with some buddies from Guido's and slept in on Sunday. It wasn't until mid-afternoon I realized I had picked up the mail from the hallway box. I grabbed a bunch of overdue bills, junk mail, and magazines. The stuff I had accumulated all week and dropped it in a pile on my kitchen table next to the beer bottles from Friday night. Nor had I heard from Tom. Melanie must have really let him have it when he came in Saturday morning. I could still hear her shrill voice warning him against the vice of associating with that lowlife Gordon Butts. I rolled into bed for another hour and a half, then showered and had some breakfast down at Mom and Pop's. There was an article in the paper about Thornton Plumbing and Supply. Somebody had garnered the press's interest about possible expansion plans. I figured it was her. She would know the power of the press and how to melt them. Walter Thornton was too busy with his big heating accounts and working with his warehouse people. She wasn't mentioned once. She was too smart for that. She headlined Walter Thornton and all his achievements, beginning from the day he pushed a broom at his father's old warehouse in the city. How he had been given the gift of an education at Hillburton Business School. Big deal. He had never been in sales or even on the road for years. Daddy gave him the sales job when he got out of school. Nobody ever paid for school for me. Nobody ever gave me a job without the sweat that went into it. I threw down the paper, finished my coffee, and headed down to Cranes Beach. Put shot money on the college basketball games with a few guys I knew. Then I walked the frozen streets. The cold air hurt my nose and ears. I should have worn gloves and a hat, but still stayed warm along the water and stared at the ice chunks along the deserted beach. Maybe I'd lost my touch with Connie. She was sophisticated enough to lead me on with that note at the apple wine. But she wasn't a shafter. She had the outward sincerity that I lacked. At four o'clock, I cut through the alleys back to the Bryant, where I'd change and head into Guido's. I was still cold from my hike around town, my ears stinging so bad I took a hot shower to quell the pain. I cranked up the heat and strolled around in my boxer shorts for over an hour, yanking some clothes off the closet hangers. 
made myself a strong cup of coffee and dumped in some brandy, stepped into my pants and started going through the mail, tossing out most of the envelopes toward the overflowing green metal wastebasket in the corner of the kitchen. I glanced at more intra-company correspondence from Thornton Plumbing and Supply. Long gray envelopes packed with sales quotas and news updates about the newest plumbing supplies. Who cared how some marketing chief was pushing his product? I didn't. I chucked them all in an accumulating trash pile near the basket, which should have prompted me to finally empty the container in the outside dumpster. More sales quotas and account listings. I wanted to get the hell out on the road and sell. I didn't need all this other nonsense. I sucked down the coffee, dressed, and got ready for my excursion to Guido's. With the night temperature falling, I should have worn a jacket outside when I emptied the trash. The sun had set behind the adjacent building, scattering light back toward the water. I slid the cold metal dumpster open and tipped the wastebasket. In the bright pole light, I saw my account list. The cold stung my ears again as I reached out and pulled the sheet in my hands. Accounts had been added. Not just a few accounts, but a number of house accounts that Walter Thornton usually had kept for himself in Jersey. These were the accounts he had developed and didn't want to pay commission to an outside salesman. I looked at the time on the printout. Thursday night, 10.30 p.m. She had done it. She had linked into the computer and added $250,000 worth of fresh sales into my base. I flipped the pages in the chilling air. She hadn't changed my quota. It was like an instant gift, an increase in salary, and she probably would sweet-talk the whole matter to Walter Thornton at some later date. I grabbed the sheets from the trash, shut the bin door, and headed back to my apartment. I climbed to the second floor and stared at those juggled accounts. I knew damn well who they were and how Walter Thornton had kept them from me. I read them out loud, stated the cash value next to them. Then I let out a little watch hint and opened the apartment door. I found my calculator in my briefcase and started pounding the keys, adding up the potential commission. The calculator faded out a few times. I needed a new one, but quickly surmised I had been given 15 grand in my commissions. All because I paid attention to Connie 72 hours ago during a snowstorm in New Jersey. Not a bad night's work, but it proved more garrity. And all of you can see that as you listen to this video. The woman was going to take care of me. I had no doubts that that will-call note meant she would call. I would hear from Connie, and I knew I'd be seeing her real soon. I wasn't sure whether it would be in this area or maybe back out on the road, but we'd be having dinner again, talking and laughing. Maybe she wouldn't talk about adding new accounts, and I wondered if I would even mention it myself. I'd test her and see how much she could keep inside before she had to talk. I didn't know the full extent of this woman's personality, but I was going to find out. Framed by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 6. I drove my tank through Walter Thornton's front gate at Tanglewood. I knew I was on my way up in the world when I saw spotlights shining all over this fortress. Walter Thornton had taken me into the field, introducing me as his golden boy, and told all those transferred house accounts I would now call directly on them. Connie's influence extended deep over this guy. I was slowly getting a piece of that influence. She had called me direct and told me how much she enjoyed my taking the time to share dinner with her during the storm. But her tone had changed. 
Her once refined, classy voice now reeked with a silliness bordering on stupidity as if she were flirting. Maybe this is her way of winning me over? I didn't question it. She wanted lunch downtown at an Italian overpriced yuppie hangout called Restaurant Nouveau in Cranes Beach. Sure, I said. I can make the arrangements to be back in town on Wednesday. She knew damn well I'd make the arrangements. I looked in my closet afterwards. I didn't even have a suit that would fit into the country club clique that frequented that restaurant. And I questioned how Connie, a hundred miles from her house, even knew about this place. I scooted out that evening to visit my friend Sammy, the tailor, who I hadn't seen in a year and a half. First question out of Sammy's mouth involved payment for the fabric. I spent money for the suit and didn't worry about the bill because it would show up in my mailbox at the end of the month. Arriving at Restaurant Nouveau, I was embarrassed to have the valet park my junk box and left it in the public parking down the street. When I showed up on foot and checked in my top coat, she was already sitting at a small round table draped in white linen and fresh roses with stuck in glass vases. She wore one of those soft, smooth, fuzzy Angora dresses with an opening displaying her still tan chest. She must have hung out at the tanning salon and added to the rest of her grooming separate specialists for her nails, hair, and whatever else needed tuning up. First she was all business, but then she lightened up. Maybe it was the wine. Maybe she just didn't care anymore. She complained about Walter Thornton in a way that surprised me, and she removed a smooth rose from the vase and savored the sweetness. Her fidgeting made me nervous. She kept it up all during the spicy lunch as she threw out a few curveballs, secrets about the business, and her personal desire to cram as much into her life as possible. I smiled between drags on my filtered cigarette. I played the game, Garrity throwing my own carefully timed compliments, especially about her finely trimmed appearance. She ate it up. I felt like a free-throw shooter at his best form, basket after basket, and I couldn't miss. I could feel the tension building, but it was a good tension, the kind you feel after a long day's work. I sat back and waited for her to ask me to leave the restaurant with her. Instead, she went into a long dissertation about her childhood how she always was pressured and forced to be bringing home straight-A reports to her teacher-slash-parents. They guided her through the private schools and on to Vassar. The more she talked, the more everything fit into place, all her class and refined manners. I was bored, but I didn't show it, and I realized I was employing skills I used every day in the field, listening to overblown egos spouting off about their personal achievements. I was good, Garrity half-believing my interest in her. She had a third glass of wine and fiddled with her wide gold earrings. She was real loose now. The Vassa manners and the private school instructions had melted like the ice in the thick wine goblets. With sufficient consumption of alcohol, Connie had no more class than any dive-bar bimbo I had shacked up with on the road. She liked the booze. I was surprised she let herself get in this position, but I didn't care maintaining my overprotective Sir Galahad performance. She paid the bill, and we left the restaurant around two. Her arm wound around me, both for comfort and balance. The maitre d' didn't notice her disrupted gait, but the hostess did, and seemed stunned, raising her brows. Holding up one of the leather-bound menus, she muttered something to one of the waitresses as we picked up our coats. I was walking with a pliable piece of putty called Connie Thornton leaning on my shoulder. 
She haphazardly unzipped her pocketbook and yanked out the keys to her gray BMW. I was in charge now, Garrity. I was the one giving the electric code to the newly washed vehicle, and I powerfully pressed in each digit. Connie's face hung like a lost dog, eyes heavy, the wine on her breath mixed with her flowered perfume. I helped her inside. The leather interior smelled new and the dash looked like aircraft control panels. She had crossed the line when she gave me the keys. I sat on the soft seat, finding out quickly how to adjust the movable frame and self-fitting cushion. I buckled her belt. From the moment she gave me the car's electronic code that night, she instructed me well. She walked me through every detail of that car, worth more than my last year's salary. I was surprised how she had planned this afternoon, despite her slurred speech and explicit sexual innuendos. I shifted the car, gripping the wheel as if I had been driving it for years. It was a taste of the life I wanted so badly. Like that feeling about not worrying about your next rent payment or how much money is in the checking account. Connie Thornton had a blatant disregard for things trivial, mundane, or costly. She smiled at me, moving her red-pasted lips around like she had been waiting to break out of her mold for years. Vents were in motion, and nothing could prevent what was meant to be. About an hour later, I drove her posh automobile up to the town's highest-priced hotel. During the next month, I would spend more time in the Hotel Carlton's oversized bed in adjacent water tub than I would at home or on the road. I neglected my accounts, but somehow she covered for me or sent Walter Thornton out himself. When I walked under the stone portico at the Tanglewood party, I was like a tourist first hitting New York City. Tanglewood had three major wings and a number of side projections. It had the same smooth rock you might see in a public building in Washington and had windows larger than my entire second-floor dump at the Bryant. Connie was waiting inside. This woman was mad about me. She had access and control to every cent that Walter Thornton had ever made in his life. I was like a sieve, Garrity, ready to suck in all this power and money. The only thing in my way was that tall, awkward man in the black tuxedo inside the massive foyer. Walter Thornton stood with Connie and personally greeted the guests. He had taken a liking to me because his wife had constructed a plethora of finely fabricated lies, crafted so well that he didn't even know he was being conned. Her ability to delude her husband bothered me, and I didn't know why. Gordon, Gordon, I'm so glad you could make it tonight. Never mind I had rented this tuxedo from Sammy with the stipulation that I wouldn't spill anything on it or tear the material. Sammy was starting to get on my nerves. So was everyone else who barked out orders from their little Connor pockets of power. I looked over at Connie as she talked to a few lady friends she knew. Her green satin gown was cut low, breasts popped up, and in the dead of winter, her skin still tanned. All of it. I have a few things to talk with you about in private, Gordon, said Walter Thornton as he slapped me on the shoulder. Great, I said, but I was waiting to make eye contact with her. The passion in her eyes was something only I could see it as she slowly panned the room. It was strong, beckoning, and vivid. She extended her long white glove outward. I wanted to kiss her arm and slowly peel off the glove. Good evening, Mr. Butts. I'm happy you were able to join us tonight. Well, it's nice to be here. I had to practice those condescending tidbits that these people seemed to throw out at each other. Maybe I should have said something like, 
My pleasure, Mrs. Thornton. What a lovely home you and your husband have. Talking like that made me feel like I was spewing warm spit into a stiff breeze. I walked by her as Walter Thornton greeted the next round of arrivals. Sober, she was so controlled, not glancing at me once as I looked over my shoulder. Her eyes were fixed forward, her speech flowing gracefully with each passing guest. Now I had to mingle with these snobs. But I found almost instantly they all jumped when I used buzzwords like sales coordinator and manager of corporate accounts. I could cut my way through the weeds. These jokers liked titles, and I had to glorify the positions. What I was doing and didn't know it was introducing myself to a bunch of important people, uppity-ups who wouldn't be caught breathing air within a 15-mile radius of my tenement apartment. Fortunately, no one asked where I lived or where I had been. I used my wit and my flattery to skirt past anything and produce a likable character for these slobs. A seemingly well-mannered chap who listened intensely to their personal stories. Like a graduate from the Dale Carnegie course, I was winning friends and influencing people. These bastards had no idea that I loathed every one of them. They were boring and I only wanted the power they possessed. I wanted to come and go anywhere, when and where I pleased. And why shouldn't I go for it? Where did their money come from anyway? Walter Thornton stood like a sentry in front of his wife in the oversized front door. I knew from the scuttlebutt among the other salesmen about his heart problems, but I didn't know the extent till I heard the word nitroglycerin later that night. It had confirmed what I had seen him doing in his office the day he interviewed me. And it was at that moment, Garrity, I thought about killing Walter Thornton. I stared at him as he gurgled and laughed like a circus clown with a guest. They wouldn't be wasting their time with his dumbass if he wasn't swimming in dough. And I sensed over a month ago, maybe on that snowy night in New Jersey, that neither would she. Maybe she wanted him dead, but she would never say it. That would be the icing on the cake, freeing her to wield total control of the company, maybe even sell it. I didn't want to shoot Walter Thornton or beat him silly. Crime like that involved anger, and I wasn't angry at him. I just wanted him out of the way. Something more elaborate and exotic was in order. Subtle and natural. I could see the newspaper obit as I studied Walter Thornton moving with the guests. Died of natural causes. Had heart attack. Long history of ailment. Flowers to the American Heart Association. Leaves wife and no children. Business to carry on under wife's leadership. Son of a bitch, it would be easy. Fudge his medicine or put him under stress. Make him have the big one. I couldn't believe my luck. Be carrying on with Walter Thornton's charge wife was wild. And Walter Thornton, a spinning top losing momentum, had no idea. I tapped my foot and wished I could talk to Connie right now. But I couldn't tell her about my plans. A quick doubt settled over me. Maybe she enjoyed being Mrs. Walter Thornton. Events like this allowed her to showboat her place and position. Hey, Connie, I thought as I watched her on the side sofa speaking to an older couple. Connie, by the way, I'm going to kill Walter. I don't think you know how devious and clever I can be. I'm going to kill the bastard and have you at the same time. I'm going to be the one standing there in the foyer meeting the guests. I want to hop on a private plane and head for the Caribbean house for the weekend. 
A quick tap on my shoulder turned into a full bear hug. I looked up as Walter Thornton smiled and almost drooled all over me. His awkward mannerisms annoyed me. Gordon, you've turned New Jersey around. Well, thank you. You know, I had my doubts when I hired you. Oh, I almost didn't, but I did. Why did you? I asked. Connie stood by the sofa and stared at me and her husband. Because you told the biggest pack of lies with a face so straight I thought I could actually believe you. Isn't that the heart of sales? People know we're full of shit, but they like us. They buy from us because they like us for whatever reason, Gordon. And my suspicions were right. Suspicions? Yes, of course, I suspected you could do it, and you have done it. You've turned things around. And you know I'm thinking of expanding my business. My wife suggested it about two years ago, but it took some convincing on her part to get this old geezer off his duff. It's going to work, Gordon. I need a general sales manager to start that expansion. My lips moved uncontrollably upward. I felt weird. I wanted to jump up and down or run over to Connie and pick her up. She was aware of her husband's offer as she crossed the room to mingle with the younger set. Walter Thornton must have discussed the whole thing with her. She may have even suggested it. I wanted her right now. Our company's on the way up, I said with a little emotion. Inside, I was churning and ready to blow apart. Control over the everyday operations from a sales standpoint is essential. What a lineup bullshit. I didn't think Walter Thornton knew it, though. Well, you are my new general sales manager, Gordon. He shook my hands and then patted me so hard on the back I thought he'd knock the wind out of me. He laughed incoherently, so pleased with himself and his company. Why, well, I, I don't know what to say. How about yes? Yes! The emotion was timed and Walter Thornton was pleased. I could see it in his gray eyes. I looked at his tuxedo and wondered just how his heart was beating below his chest. Was it out of control? Did it miss beats? Was it straining? I needed him dead. The sales job was good, with more money, but more money was not enough. Gordon, said Connie as she arrived with drink in hand. She was still cool and restrained. I conjured up an image of us locked together in the Carlton bed. How it went on for hours. Walter has not been discreet. Yes, I admit, I let the cat out of the bag, said Walter Thornton. Congratulations, I'm sure you'll do very well in your new position. I gently bowed like I was one of them. Here I was, Gordon Butts, having made it to the edge of the major league. I could kill Walter Thornton by stress. I knew I could. How could that be called murder? Who would know? Who would investigate? These people were rich, but they weren't streetwise. They weren't even clever. The bastard would be dead by springtime, and I'd be walking around this place in my boxer shorts. Thank you, Mrs. Thornton. I only hope I can give you what you want. I don't know why I said that, but it went clean over Walter Thornton's head, and he kept smashing my back. I wanted to haul off and smack him right in the jaw, the dumb bastard. Walter, said Connie in her little girl voice, would you mind if I steal Gordon for a while? I think it's important that our guests get to know your general sales manager. Steal, steal, steal! Walter Thornton evaporated into the room. I spoke from the corner of my mouth. Steal away? Talk normally, will you? She had never ordered me to do anything, and I can't say that I liked it. 
I wanted to tell her to shut up, but I kept walking along the wood-paneled walls toward the huge hearth. One of the servants brought in more logs and loaded them onto the thick metal andirons. Maybe she didn't mean anything by it. After all, it would be fatal if we let anyone know we were fooling around. This was a social occasion, and there was protocol to be followed. It was a proper course, I thought, as she introduced me to a group of local business leaders. I performed well, answering the difficult questions about the business. I realized that some of Walter Thornton was rubbing off on me. Without knowing it, I was learning the business. Connie was gone. I searched the lower ballroom and up the stairs, but didn't understand her earlier abrasive tone. Is this how it was going to be now that I had moved up a notch? Didn't matter. My mission was to get this woman under my thumb. What the hell did I care how she spoke? In the power game, growing committed to somebody could be lethal. I was falling in love with this woman and upset about it. Falling in love could leave me vulnerable. Maybe she sensed that vulnerability and allowed herself the added power that commitment gives a person. Everything else was still there. Her sparkling eyes, the inner glow that drove me crazy the first time I saw her in the warehouse. She hadn't changed her wild ways in bed, yet I had a weakness. A weakness because I had let myself fall for this woman. I looked over at Walter Thornton again and debated whether I should kill him. But I had come this far. I wanted his power. I wanted him out of the way. Next morning, I stood with Scott and Margie Tompkins outside as they retrieved their car from the side lot. The busboys had all gone home, and the servants were long since asleep. Any buzz I had from the drinks consumed last night had left me. I looked back toward the murky ocean and tried to guess how far away the sun was from popping over the horizon. Walter Thornton had gone to bed a half a dozen hours ago. I spotted him trudging up the stairs around midnight. But I hadn't seen Connie for four and a half hours when she was talking with a few of her New York friends. I didn't know who they were, nor did I care to find out. I lit a cigarette and walked along the patio onto the side lawn. I stepped onto the grass and behind a row of tall junipers, gazed across the heated swimming pool inside the winterized plastic bubble. I saw something splash in the water. Not the rowdy type of ruckus you'd associate with a water fight or someone clowning around in the pool. I took a few puffs and glided closer. What I saw was the fine-tuned stroke of a swimmer, each successive scoop in the water as precise as the prior turn. I reached the junipers and pulled back the heavily scented branches. Through the plastic, I saw Connie clearly in the underwater blue glow, vinyl white cap over her head and form-fitting red suit covering her little body. She moved like a graceful water creature down the pool's length. When she reached the diving board area, she spun around. Her perfectly toned, rounded hips turned with a mass of water churning over her body. She was a blurred red streak underwater, finally emerging about 15 feet away, and she took in the circulated air between powerful strokes. I didn't remember her mentioning such a depthness in water, although I was never sure how she trimmed her body so well. I let the cigarette hang from my mouth as I stepped from behind the junipers, opened the wood frame door and wandered onto the cement shadows. I ended up on the blue slick tiles along the pool's edge. Her husband was alone in some upstairs bedroom, his chest moving up and down as he took in vital air. And his heart pumped not too efficiently, easily overtaxed and dependent on the nitro tablets. The easiest thing for me to do would be to substitute the nitro and then wait. 
Everyone would understand how Walter Thornton finally succumbed to his condition. Poor old Walter, the rich man with a wife as ambitious as he was rich. I learned that about Connie after I first slept with her. She wasn't overt about what she wanted, but she got what she wanted just the same. As I fell in love with her, on some level I liked that quality because I wanted that same raw power, but I lacked her sophistication. In an odd way, I was ready to use her and knew she was using me. Neither of us cared. She beached herself at the far end. I knew she saw me and had the feeling that I was standing, smoking a cigarette and watching her the whole time she swam the pool. In the pre-dawn light, she picked up a white terracloth towel and peeled away her cap. Her long brown hair bounced over her tan shoulders, but she still didn't turn in my direction and gently dabbed the moisture off her body. I walked in the dim light and stuffy air, aware of each step over the pool tiles until I reached the far end. She was 25 feet away, but not facing me. I studied her legs and the way the red cloth suit fit perfectly around her tight buttocks. Her back was perfect. So, Gordon, what did you think of your first night in high society? She kept drying herself without looking at me. Same people, bigger words, bigger stories. Bigger pocketbooks, she said, and then she turned. A string of moisture droplets still swept across her freckled skin, along the suit fabric, and down her tight breasts. I tossed the cigarette in the water. I thought she might move away, but she didn't. She took the towel and looped it around the back of my tuxedo and pulled me against her cooler, moist body. She tightened the towel till it almost felt like a noose. Then she leaped up and wrapped her legs around me. Somehow she maneuvered me back to the diving board, and I lowered her onto the gritty surface. She had her suit off now, and I dropped my tuxedo pants. She had an adhesive quality, not just in the way she pulled my body over hers. It began when she kissed drawing my lips into hers with an all-consuming force. It was intense. She expected it to go on for long periods of time, and it usually did. When we were done, the sun broke through the junipers in the plastic. She pulled me over to the pool. I had my clothes on now, but she was still naked and kissed me. She could never get enough of me or anything she desired. The sun warmed my neck, and she started again. Butts is such a chump and he doesn't even know it. Even more of a blithering fool than Ned Racine and Body Heat, which came to mind when I began writing Framed. Body Heat was influenced in turn by Double Indemnity from 1944, starring Frederick Murray and Barbara Stanwyck, based on the book by James M. Kane. Framed gains a slow momentum, so slow that Butts doesn't even realize he's being played. In real life, there are times when I knew I was being played and let the perpetrator think they were playing me. Not good for sales. I'd like to write another book, and I'd even call it Double Play, where somebody like Butts, probably female, knows she's being played and goes along with the con for another purpose. Gets to be a sticky wicket, especially when player number one thinks they've been so clever. This is Robert P. Fitton. Staying out of the best laid plans of mice and men are the exact quote from Robert Burns. The best laid schemes of mice and men. Gang out, All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz.com.